Welcome to Let's Face the Facts. I'm David Almeida, and I'm your host for this rewatch podcast for the classic sitcom, The Facts of Life. I'm an actor in Orlando, Florida, and every week I bring you some of the greatest talent in the Central Florida arts community. Join us as we synopsize, analyze, criticize, and ultimately idolize the show, episode by episode. Hey guys, it's another week, another Wednesday, another show. Thank you so much for downloading and for pressing play. My guest this week is Billy Flanagan. Billy Flanagan is an actor, a singer, a dancer, an improviser. He does a weekly open mic piano bar show at this bar in Winter Garden, Florida, uh, called Pilar's. He's been doing that for years now. He is, for all intents and purposes, he is theme park royalty because he has worked for the Walt Disney Company for 39 years and it is still there, is still going strong. One of the few, one of the proud that still remains in uh, Disney entertainment. So uh, it, it is thrilling that I was able to finally connect with him and chat and have him be on the show. Now, before we actually get to the show, a couple of things. First of all, I want to welcome a new Tutti Fruity, Kevin W. Hey, Kevin W., welcome to the family. Tutti Fruities are the people who support the show through Patreon at the $3 a month level. If you want to become a Tutti Fruity, head on over to my Patreon page, and you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal, through Venmo, through Cash App, through Zelle, pretty much any way that you can send me money. If you are willing to send it to me, I will gladly and graciously accept it. You can find all the links to all of that stuff in the show notes and on this show's webpage. Now, a little bit of uh, house cleaning from last week for Louis Gravance's show. I was just listening to it this morning, and uh, it drives me crazy that I can never remember the names of the colleges to which Blair was accepted. The three colleges were Wellesley, Smith, and Langley, and Blair chose Langley. So I'm going to keep that in my show notes every single week because I seem to need to remember it frequently and I never can. That Langley College, if you want a, a sort of gauge as to what level of school it is, it is on par with Wellesley and Smith. So the other thing about last week's show is Zoom was getting a little bit glitchy and there were some little sound inconsistencies and you know that drives me crazy. I try my best and sound quality is really important to me and there is a little bit of glitchiness again this week. That's that's what that's what we get from COVID people. I, I try to minimize that in the editing but it is there and I don't think it detracts from the entertainment powerhouse that is this episode in which... Billy Flanagan and I watched Season 6, Episode 9, Dear Apple. And the original air date was November 21st of 1984. Are you ready to jump on in? Let's face the facts with Billy Flanagan. Billy Flanagan, welcome to the show. I can't believe that I'm actually going to be on this podcast. I think I shared with you that... I really maybe watched two episodes of this in my life. Three now, because I watched the one you sent me. <laughs> yeah, but we have so many mutual friends that I've had on the show. 
and your name has come up multiple times, most recently with the wonderful Andrea Canny. And uh, so it was just like, I got to get Billy on the damn show. I got to have you do this. And if you haven't watched it. it, it doesn't matter. I want to know what you think about it looking back to this time from our long lost youth. Well, I'm sure that you know that I'm way older than everybody. So like my kids probably watch this because mm-hmm. you're probably the same age as my kids. Oh, <laughs> I'm Billy, I'm 52, dude. I'm much closer to your age than you think. Uh, not that close. Yeah, but the deal is, um, I remember you and I first, I mean, I had known you. You are, in fact, a legend at uh, Walt Disney World as far as uh, all the performances and shows that you have done over the years but we met doing this show called stitches supersonic celebration and you were one of the host mcs of that show and i i was doing something else we weren't playing the same role but i remember i was always so thankful to have you around because everybody else in that show was under the age of 25. and i they didn't know any reference anywhere to anything and I'm just like, what? so when I could say one of the, there were these uh, breakdancing robots and one of the guys, if you remember his neutral robot face was puckering his lips, a big wide eyes and puckered lips. And I was like, oh my God, it's like watching the clinkers on Shields and Yarnell all over again. <laughs> and just crickets everywhere. I mean, I didn't really expect that. That would have been a big thing, but you laughed and I was like, Thank you for being you, Billy. Thank you for, you get me, you feel me. (laughs) Well, let's get to this show. So you've already told us that you didn't really watch it because honestly, because you are older than I, I was 11 when it premiered. So if you were 11, that means that I was 19. Mm -hmm. And so I was already in college and working in nightclubs. And I mean, I didn't ever watch TV. Yeah. So you know, now I realize why I really didn't watch it. And if it was on for that long, I was already working at Disney and probably a dad by then. Oh my gosh. Uh, We're going to start talking now officially about season six, episode nine called Dear Apple. The original air date was November 21st of 1984. This is the night before Thanksgiving uh, in 1984. So people had this on while they were defrosting and stuffing their turkeys and making their green bean casserole. I was working the hoop-de-doo that night. Oh, were you? Um, yep. I was, I was at the hoop-de-doo. Yeah. Cause my son was born in March of 1984. Wow. So, um, I was already a dad by the time this one came. So I'm sure I was working and I was not home to watch it. You, <laughs> yeah. on the original air date. So the story is by Deidre Fay and Stuart Wolpert. They are uh, veteran writers of the show. They've been around for a couple of seasons now. And uh, I think they might have story editor or producer credits. So they're, they've been around long enough that they have extra uh, credits. Teleplay by Paul Haggis. Did you recognize that name? You know what? I saw the name, but I did not recognize who it was. I heard you mention him on another episode, I think. Did you not? Paul Haggis is the writer-director who brought us the movie Crash, which swept the Oscars back in 2006, I believe. He's been writing uh, for the Facts of Life for a while now and uh, has a few under his belt and will continue to do so going forward before he transitions into uh, writing and directing for the big screen. And this episode is directed by John Boab. John is the soon to be the in-house director 
we are right now at that sort of changeover point where he is uh, just starting in as a director as we are losing Assad Kelada, who is moving over to Who's the Boss. Uh, John Boab is going to become the guy who does most of the Facts of Life episodes. So this is the point, Billy, where I like to put my guest on the spot Yay. and ask you if you would please provide a one or two sentence quick synopsis of the entire episode, similar to a listing like you might see in TV Guide. Okay. Um, Joe asks a computer for advice on how to solve a problem that her and Blair are having over some miscommunication. Oh, crisp and clean, no caffeine, sir. That was magnificent. <laughs> and as you said that, and you said solving a problem, I'm thinking, how do you solve a problem like Blair Warner? Oh, yes. Uh-huh. I didn't know her last name. I would have sung yeah. it with you if I did Blair didn't. Warner, yes. Blair Warner. Uh, yeah. So, and um, this is... We uh, ha are having a lot of episodes. We're only in the ninth episode of the season so far, but this is very much a transitional season where they are trying new things, reaching out. They're not going for standard storylines. And this whole thing with Joe talking to the computer and then the actual plot being told in flashback is something very atypical for the show. And... Uh, we have several things that are new or different or weird about this episode that I will get into when we get there. And uh, now, yeah. Is the computer, because it says what the title was, was the computer an Apple computer? Uh, no, not at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> In fact, the TV, the screen itself does not look like a computer monitor. It looks like a, a video television monitor, which is... Yeah stands to reason because they were piping in all the text. They were having to put that onto the screen right. and, and do that. And so I don't even think that was a true computer monitor. I think that was a television set. Well, then why did they title it the thing with the Apple? Was <sighs> oh, it, if you were to, if you remember the, the computer's name was Steve. So that makes sense to me now, if it was an Apple computer that his name was Steve because of Steve Jobs. Oh, God, I didn't even think about that. Or Steve Wozniak, two Steves invented the yeah. Apple computer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I didn't even think about that. But I, the Apple computer was a fairly new thing. Matter of fact, I did a little research that the Apple II came out in 1977. And right now we're in the, uh, the time of the Apple III, which came out in 1980 to compete with IBM in the business market. And um, let me see, in 1984, this past February before this episode, uh, the Macintosh computer was introduced and that was a big Super Bowl ad in, oh. in the Super Bowl that year. And home computers did exist before this. It was not, Macintosh was not the first home computer as opposed to a computer being a thing that existed in a workplace. Uh, I can say, from my own experience, I had in 1983, I had an Atari 1200XL, which was kind of like a elaborate game system with a keyboard that could word process, that could, you know, print out. I had a, a dot matrix printer. 
I had this computer and I took it to college with me and used it for the most part as a word processor. So uh, home computers were very new at this point. Yeah. Um, and, and just the last thing I'll say about computers in general, because it did get me sort of thinking and doing some research to kind of see where we were at this point. Uh, this is 1984. I graduated high school in 86, and we did have a fairly new computer room at my high school that had been started, I think, my sophomore or junior year. And then I was in college from 86 to 90, and that is where we had what you're seeing here, a computer lab, where it was a room of computers. You'd have to bring your three and a half inch floppy and you know write your paper on it. I didn't because I had my Atari back in my dorm room, so I was lucky. Uh, but there, you know, com this was definitely the era of the computer lab, and it would continue right up till about the end of the decade. And that's when you started really seeing the Mac Classic, the Mac SE, the lower prices on the home computers really starting to hit, as well as the PCs. Wow. So that's uh, that's my recollection. That's where I, I believe we were as a nation. So we're in this computer lab and it's at Langley College. We assume that's where Joe and Blair go to school. And um, before the very beginning of the scene, there is a short little scene in the hallway of Blair and Joe where we learn that they're actively in some sort of a dispute that is cut from the syndicated version. So you wouldn't have seen that at the Daily Motion version. That's only on the DVDs. So there's little okay. bits and pieces missing. Nothing really important came out. If uh, if it did, I, I would have made a note, but that sort of thing. But um, yeah, Joe goes to this computer lab. Now there is a sort of classroom attached to it that we see. She passes through this classroom and then goes behind a partition to the computer where this com singular computer is. It's not even a multi-station multi thing. Right. Even though the sign on the door says computer lab, it's literally, that's where we keep the computer. Right. And there is a big ass dot matrix printer behind her with fan folded uh, paper with the perforations on the, the pin feeds on the side. I was, oh my God, that took me back. But in the syndicated version of this episode, it just starts in this little computer area behind a partition. So we're like, okay, I guess we're here in this place. And Joe starts talking to the computer and it starts talking back to her in a conversation the way no computer ever behaved in 1984 that I recall. Right. And then the one part he goes, are you talking to me? I don't read lips. You have to put everything in there. I'm like, well, you just understood everything she said. Yeah. And it even says, tell me what it, he says before that line. He says, she says, I have a problem. And he says, tell me everything. And so she starts to talk in and it's like, you have to type it in. It's like, bitch, you just told her to tell her. Anyway, <laughs> I would have been mad. I would have been very, very mad. Um, the, the voice of the computer that's talking to her is uh, voice actor Tony Pope. He passed away in 2004, but he left behind 131 credits on IMDb almost exclusively voiceover work, but some in-person performance things. But that is one hell of a career, even though he died young and I forget what it was, but it was, he, he did not, he didn't live into old age. I think, God, I think he might've only been in his fifties, which ugh, God forbid, 
not yeah. not fun to say in present company but um yeah so it but it does have that who was it that came up with the idea that if a computer were to talk it would talk like this in a monotone <laughs> with this little well that's throw back to the jetsons you know with rosie and stuff I, okay i guess that's so. how rosie talked on the jetsons <laughs> so that she was did. a futuristic computer but even still, she still sounded more like Wilma Flintstone to me. Uh, but but the idea, as I'm doing that, I'm thinking this is my ventriloquist voice. When I when I mimic, when when you mimic a ventriloquist voice, you start to do this, and this is where you place your eyes. And so it's this this weird. Uh, and that's also like alien voices. If ever someone's portraying, and you know, yeah. we yeah. we are here for only two of your Earth hours. But okay, whatever. Uh, it oh, it made me think of the Iraq computer on Wonder Woman. Remember that? The, 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 no. The Linda Carter Wonder Woman? Yes, the... Linda Carter Wonder Woman, yeah. It was, the screen didn't even have text. It was just all LEDs. It looked like a an electric light bright. And it would, oh. you know, and it would flash. It was like, good morning, Diana Prince. And, and of course, it was like, you know, refrigerator-sized things with reel-to-reel tapes on them. And you know, it probably was it was probably a megabyte of memory or <laughs> processing power or something. Uh and oh oh the, the last thing I'll say about the about the room is um I'm gonna do this now. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this now, even though it's a reveal at the end of the episode. Because Joe passes through that classroom and we see the instructor. The instructor does say, Could we start, please? You all know your assignments. And then all the students get busy doing something and then joe goes behind the thing and then that's where the syndicated version of the episode starts well when the computer starts engaging joe in a full-on conversation and saying okay i need you to tell me everything here joe does pop her peek her head over the partition and we do see the teacher just sitting there and then she proceeds and it's like Okay, I guess she's not concerned that that guy can hear her. But in the syndicated version where we didn't see her pass through that classroom, at the end of the show, she gets up and walks out. And it's like, wait a minute, that whole fucking classroom could hear everything. They did. I noticed that. I was like, they were right there. <laughs> it's like, this is so bizarre. I mean, a computer lab just could have been a lab there was no need to have there be a classroom or an instructor she could have just gone into a closet that was now a room where they put a computer and and at the end when the kids get up the, the students the college students i call them kids because they're still too young uh they're getting and they're handing in papers but you realize they don't even have desks it is chairs it is a room with chairs facing a little desk so it's like, well, what were they were? Were they writing on their hands? Are they writing on their laps? Right. What was the what was the assignment they were doing in this room called the computer lab, where there were no computers? It was just one of those sitcom moments of guys. You could base it somewhat in intelligence and common sense, and uh, things like this drive me crazy because yeah. they are perfectly fixable. They are unnecessary WTF moments. But uh, yeah. the whole entire thrust of the episode is Joe sits down to the computer and uh, she enters a code and then she enters a file name and then she enters an assignment and all, all voice prompted. And uh, it, somehow it gets to uh, 
she says, how are you with personal problems? And he says, check internal directory. And she types something and then it says logos, languages, budgeting, personal counseling. And she chooses personal counseling because computers could be therapists in 19... If you're Steve. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> so, um, but that's weird. And also logos. What What is logo? Languages, budgeting, personal counseling. We know what those things are. Logos? What, what was that? <laughs> logo was a programming language. Logo. But it's just like, what was that? It's like the writers are like, oh, uh, just throw some computer words in there. Um, Joe then decides to pick personal counseling. And, oh, and she says, personal counseling. She says, that sounds like the ticket. And she says it very much the way John Lovitz would say it on Saturday Night Live, but not for another year, Billy. Oh, you think John Lovett stole it from Joe? I think Facts of Life? I think John Lovett stole it from the Facts of Life. Either that or um, what was John Lovett's? Was he a Second City person or was he a Groundling person? I think he was a Second City person. I, I do too. And so maybe Nancy McKeon had gone to see something at Second City. And ah. or, or one of the writers, because granted, you know, Nancy McGeehan doesn't write her own lines, but maybe they went and saw John Lovett's. Though, though, I really feel like John Lovitz is a New York person. I don't think he would have been discovered in L.A. Really dissect this. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we're going to be here 17 hours, my darling. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> so uh, continue. We're, we're going to get moving quickly, but this is all the setup. And then we're going to yep. move quickly. I promise you. So after she does her little John Lovitz. Oh, Trivial Pursuit. What was the name of that character that John Lovitz did? That was, yeah, yeah. my wife, Morgan Fairchild. That's the ticket. Ticket. Oh, gosh. I didn't watch TV. Uh-huh. I'm just going to well, say that. Well, I will tell you, Billy Flanagan, the name of that character was Tommy Flanagan. No, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> now you know that. I have given that to you. You're welcome. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. So while she is initiating this, this, uh, this counseling program, and again, this is 1984 where they clearly didn't have a sense of what computers were and what they could do and what they couldn't do. Isn't it funny that here in now, what, 35 years later, more than 35 years later, we're like, my phone still barely understands what I tell it to, and it won't listen to me unless it is clearly prompted and shifts over into I am listening mode. It's, we don't have conversations with our phones we are still talking to alexa barking a command and getting a response in a very mechanical way it's i imagine in 1984 they probably thought by now they'd be the the, the computers would be making this podcast for us you know oh, for sure yeah when i when i sit in my car i'm like call sheila ward mobile it says calling jen warren i'm like <laughs> no, it's not even close yes it's not it's even so close. True. I don't want to talk to Jen Warren. I want to talk to Sheila Ward. <laughs> and I, I asked for Kevin Brassard. If I if I don't say call Kevin Brassard, oh, it yeah. calls somebody else. Exactly, exactly. Right. And yet we have a computer here with Joe. When she she waits too long to respond, the computer says hello, <laughs> hello. you who? Yeah, <laughs> I was like, well, uh, 
So the computer does introduce himself. I'm saying himself. I guess I should be gender non-specific in this in these times of this millennium. Uh, so the computer they introduce themselves as the Hovecraft Interactive Interpersonal Communication Counseling Program. But you can call me Steve. But um, that's where the Steve comes in, and it does get a big laugh. Personal. Steve's not even an acronym of that. No, exactly. I'm saying, granted, we do, we we have worked for the Walt right. Disney Company for quite some time, so a acronyms are, you know, every day we we say and speak and learn 50 sure. of them. But Hovecraft yeah. Interactive Interpersonal Communication Counseling Program is H-I-I-C-C-P. Call it hiccup. Yes, you you absolutely read my mind. Yeah. But you can call me Steve, any whoozle. Mm -hmm. The computer says to Joe, We'll get comfortable, start at the beginning, and tell me everything. And Joe says, and this is how you know the show is successful and has connected to its audience. When Joe says, I have this problem, her name is Blair, and the audience erupts in laughter because uh, they know. Is this a live audience? Yes, uh, it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And the fact that the audience knows and understands the Blair and Joe relationship at this point, because we are now five years into the two of them being at odds and at each other's throats. So Joe continues, Blair and I had a fight. I hate her guts. What should I do? But Joe's intent for coming to this computer, thankfully, this does make sense. Thankfully, this gives some reason for this show to exist. She says, I need a printout that says, Joe is right, Blair is wrong. Basically, I'm letting you be the arbitrator of this dispute that we're having since Mrs. Garrett is, I don't know, she's busy, she's baking things. So because she says, Joe is right, Blair is wrong. The computer says, who is Joe? And she says, oh, I'm Joe. And the computer says, pleased to meet you, sir. <laughs> Huge laugh. And we talk constantly, Billy, about the subtle and not so subtle lesbianic qualities of Joe and the little lines and sayings where we're like, okay, did they understand what they were writing? Some things like that. And Joe, pleased to meet you, sir. Yep. Hilarious. And I'm then I'm, I'm a girl. Yeah. And then in response to her saying she's a girl, the computer says sex makes no difference to me. And she kind of goes, oh, <laughs> that's too bad. <laughs> Makes a, I'm yeah. like, yeah, that's a sex joke. That's not typical. Yeah. That, was, that was an almost adult joke that she made there. That was pretty crazy. Yeah. So especially for 1984. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so now I'm going to attempt to go quickly through the rest of the show. Now that we have the setup, we flash back and we see what's going on. Joe takes a phone call and doesn't give a message to Blair. She goes to write it down. There are no pencils. So she says she's going to remember it, but she obviously forgets. One of the things that distracts her is Tootie and Natalie come in. They were at a store that sold movie posters and they wanted to get one that Blair had asked them to pick up, but they couldn't remember which one it was. And they figure it out with Joe's help. So Joe says, I'll go pick up the movie poster for Blair. And there, that's taken care of. Great. Thank you, Joe. Well, because Joe forgot to tell Blair the message, Blair ends up at a beauty contest, a Helen of Troy 
beauty contest in the wrong place at the wrong time where she ends up in the middle of I guess the stadium at a football game. Basketball. Where, it was a basketball game. It was a basketball game. Thank basketball you. Basketball game. Yep. On the basketball court, so it was in the gymnasium, uh, where she thought this uh, beauty pageant was going on, and she ends up getting mauled by the mascot Langley's uh, Larry. Is it Larry the Lion? Larry the Lion. Larry the Langley Lion, and uh, so with that, she is furious at Joe. Joe comes back with. Oh, but uh, the, I forgot to give you the message, but I was going to get this movie poster for you. And that's part of what distracted me. So, uh, y- you know, there, there you have it. And Blair is like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to retaliate. And so with her retaliation, we basically have this escalation of the girls trying to get back at each other after this first infraction by Joe. So. Blair uses up all the hot water in the shower before Joe takes a shower. Some boys from the college come to pick up Joe to take her to some important meeting. Blair sends them up and directs them to walk into the quote unquote bedroom. Well, it's the bathroom where Joe is showering. So they almost see her naked and Joe is embarrassed and humiliated because she never, ever thought that a man would set his eyes on her naked body. Um, (laughs) All the while, may I say that Natalie who really was the problem in this whole thing because she forgot the name of the poster. Mm-hmm. She thought it was hell something and they didn't end up getting it. And she never took responsibility saying, you know what? It was my fault. She just sat back and watched all of this unwind and couldn't wait for the next thing to happen. So you think Nat- this is Natalie's fault. That's as interesting. That's where, that's where you are oh, in this. Totally. You do okay. And I have opinions too. Sat on the couch, did not defend Joe at all. <laughs> she, she really ticked me off this episode. I'm like, oh, come on, Natalie. Interesting. Very, very interesting. In my estimation, this is Joe's fault. Really? Because she forgot to give Blair the message. But to her defense, and I went back and looked. There were no pencils when no. Blair picked up that pencil thing. That wasn't there when Joe took the call. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But it was because she was doing a nice thing for Joe, helping Natalie and and what's her tootie out. Yeah, I will say that, but and I she have did to forget. But then she tried to explain why she forgot. But yeah, but then this happened, and I was going to go get you the poster, and then Blair was just being, and Natalie sat there and went, "Let's just watch <laughs> and see what happened." And then she was pushing it about the the shower thing, and she, oh, I can't wait, and she's watching her write the things on the letter. I she's an instigator. <laughs> okay, that I I I can't really fight you on that because Natalie sometimes is ethically questionable, is what I've said. Uh, but the thing, my deal is that Joe screwed it up. It's her fault. But then when Blair said what happened, her response should have been, "Ah, fuck! I forgot to give you the message. I am so sorry." Uh, what do I need to do to make it up to you? Not, oh, I forgot to give you a message, but I was doing something nice for you. So therefore that negates the fact that I did not do something that I said I would do. True. I'm, I've, I have to, I've said this before. There are times in my life, in my younger days, when I've been that guy where my mindset was, why are you angry at me for something 
like for something I said or did when it wasn't my intent to anger you or to do something or be something bad. So aren't you ridiculous? Your feelings don't matter because they're not related to what my intent was. As opposed to whatever the fuck I did, whatever my intentions were, I hurt someone's feelings and I was being completely without any empathy for that. Okay, I got so, so my thoughts and where I go with this is like, no, 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 no. Really and truly, Blair, you know, once it escalates in Blair and the retaliation, then it does get more into, okay, Blair, now you are culpable in this whole entire feud, as it were. But the initial part was Joe screwed up and people did that in 1984 because we didn't have answering machines. And if you wanted to get a message, you couldn't text them or say, here, call her cell phone and tell her your damn self. That shit did happen. Right, so. Yeah. Joe should have groveled. Joe should have been, I am your humble servant. I am sorry that you ended up in the wrong place and all the other stuff went wrong. So that is my speaking, my peace. Praise the Lord. Amen. I have spoken. <laughs> so with this escalation, Joe gets another phone call where this pageant, I guess it's because the basketball team keeps doing well and they keep ending extending their season into these additional playoff games that is why the beauty contest keeps getting postponed so another game happens and joe starts to write down the note and says you know tonight the thing is happening there and she writes tomorrow so joe is going to once again now intentionally tell blair to be at the wrong place at the wrong time but at the end of the episode in the final scene, Blair comes in once again, having been mauled and all that. And Joe's like, whoa, 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 what are you talking? What's happened? And she says, was there something you forgot to tell me? And Joe says, I swear to God, I was going to tell you the wrong information. And I thought the better of it. I wrote it down, right. And I put it on your bed. I swear, I promise. Isn't that right, Tootie and Natalie? And they're both like, well, we didn't see it. I guess it could have gotten lost. Tootie and Natalie aren't really very supportive there. But nope. I bet Natalie took it and ripped it up. Oh, my God. That would be so funny. I'm thinking she did. Yeah. But Joe basically is, I believe Joe, when she says it, she was like, look, it was getting crazy and out of hand, and I didn't want to take it any further. So I didn't do it. Well, Blair is still angry to the point where Blair is just silently making a list on a piece of paper and making delightful uh, noises of delight when she thinks of a new different way to torture Joe. And Joe admits to the computer that it is driving her crazy. And the computer is like, well, yeah, that's a classic psychological approach. Whereas as opposed to the retaliation, the anticipation of it is the thing that's going to drive you crazy more than whatever she does. Right. And uh, so that's like, okay, computer, you're kind of right there. Uh, so at the end of the episode, she comes back to the computer and she says, so what should I do? I need you to tell me that I'm right so I can show her that even a computer is going to side with me. And the computer says, this data is incomplete. Exactly what is your relationship with Blair? And Joe says, we don't have a relationship. Oh, many, many of us would beg to disagree. You are unmarried spouses. You really are. But uh, the computer says, are you enemies, strangers, acquaintances? And Joe shrugs and says, I guess we're friends. And the computer says, well, friends trust, understand, and forgive. 
And at this point, neither of you has done that, and neither party is willing to admit guilt. So the solution is obvious. Sever the relationship, end the friendship. Prints it out on the printer, and Joe's like, whoa, wait, wait, no, 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 that, you, that, that can't be right. And the computer just goes, have a nice day, bloop, and it's gone. It's out. So Joe takes the printout, the printout that says, end the friendship. Oh, she throws it in the trash. Exactly. But after she sees yeah. Blair in the hallway yeah. and has a moment of reflection yeah. to, to visually see the woman yeah. that she loves. Matthew Arter and I have this diesel engine sound that we've dubbed in on occasion whenever we have a, a very lesbianic moment. Yeah. So we'll just go. Now, do you think that Joe loves Blair as like she wants to be with her? Uh, no. In the, oh. in the context of the show, from the point of view of the show, Joe is heterosexual, Joe dates boys, Joe ends up getting married before the season is over. To a man. She's never a lesbian on the show? No, this is 84. They wouldn't put a lesbian on television. That's why when they had this conveniently tomboyish actress, and Nancy McKeon is heterosexual too. She's married to a man with children, raised a family. I mean, unless, you know, granted, you know, I don't know her life, but by all ways that she presents herself, Nancy McKeon is also straight. Oh, I did not realize that. Yeah. But you know what? If you look at Nancy McKeon and John Travolta in Welcome Back, Cotter, they're the same person. <laughs> With this hair, yes. Same hair, same yeah. person. <laughs> I'm staring at her right now. I'm like, it's John Travolta on Welcome Back, yep. Cotter. <laughs> the computer talks to her and she just goes, what? Where? Yeah. What? I mean, but she even she even kind of talks like him too. I'm yeah, she, they do because they're both. Well, well, John Travolta's from Brooklyn. Welcome back, Carter takes place in Brooklyn. She's from the Bronx, but uh, yeah, very very similar with that the the New York thing going on. But yeah, it turns out to be kind of a nice little episode because I don't think it ever, ever would have entered into her mind to end this friendship. They are so much more than friends. Their relationship runs so much deeper than that. Yeah. Not, and I don't mean in a love or in a crush or unrequited whatevers. I mean, just what the show has given us of how they are constantly bickering. They're constantly at each other's throats. And yet at the same time, when the chips are down, they are always there for each other. Well, sure. I mean, she was even going to go get the poster for her. I mean, that was a perfect example of yeah. her saying, well, let me go get it. I'm, and she knew which poster it was. It was Damn Yankees. Yeah, you Damn know? Yankees. She knew what it was. Yeah. Okay, I do have to reference to the um, the part when Blair was in the shower singing okay. Zippity Doo Yes. Disney Diddy. How did they was, get the rights I didn't for know that? That's why you picked this episode for me because it was a Disney Diddy. Oh, uh, that's it. That's because it was a it was a Disney thing. That was a happy accident. That, but as it did, I think I thought of that. I was like, God, Billy is Mr. Disney. How appropriate. And don't forget, Lisa Welchel was on the new Mickey Mouse Club in the late 70s. And they even did go to Walt Disney World. There's a TV special on Disney Plus right now. The Mouseketeers at Walt Disney World. And the opening song, very beginning, they're on the monorail. Zippity-doo-da, zippity-ay. And she's, she's there with them. Wait, she wasn't the one with Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. No, no, this is the the new, the new Mickey Mouse Club, the new, new, new Mickey. There were there were a couple of news, okay. but yeah, no, this is this was the short lived. It only ran for like a year, if that, wow. in like seventy seven. How about that? I didn't yeah. know that. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. And uh, nobody else famous really came out of it. Uh, yeah. So um, I want to talk about these movie posters. But before we go there, we've actually gone through the whole episode. Usually I take a moment during the commercial break where I just want to talk to and get to know my guest a little bit, introduce you to my tens of listeners, Billy. <laughs> um, you are, as we've kind of alluded to, you are kind of Mr. Disney as far as you are in so many ways the quintessential example of theme park performer in that you have been doing it a long time you are the classic tall handsome blonde blue-eyed leading man i mean when, when you're in the barbie and ken parade and you play ken right yep yeah you are not figuratively a ken doll you are literally a ken doll in a walt disney world parade yeah. you just have the the talent the chops the personality the interactive skills the million dollar smile and you are beloved by so many and i i want to know how you got there because i, I want to be just like you when i grow later. up all right well, <laughs> so, I, tell you what, I i was a graduate of the boston conservatory of music i actually got hired at walt disney world my senior year at the boston conservatory oh, for crying out loud now are you yeah. originally from boston or where did you grow up I grew up in Avon, Massachusetts. I was born in Buffalo, New York, but grew up in Avon, Massachusetts. Yeah. Have we discussed this? No. Are you from there? I'm from Brockton. No, you are not. Shut up! How has this never come up? Are you kidding me? Neighboring towns. Avon is one town north, what, northwest? Yes. Where, where in Brockton did you live? Oh, I lived, we lived on the west side. We were over by Thorny Lee Golf Course. Okay. I yeah. worked at Sac Cinema. Sydney, oh, the Sac Cinema was, up there. Yes, up north. There was on, General yeah. Cinema. And then there was Sac Cinema, which was in the backyard of Frank's, the Frank's Bar and Grill. Yes. There. Yeah. I, I we actually would go fell to the off Sac. the marquee and broke my arm. I was changing the marquee. Shut up. You worked yeah. at the Sac Cinema. We did go there. I could walk to uh, Westgate Mall. So most everything we saw was at the sure, General sure. Cinema. All which my was, other siblings worked there. That the is one that crazy. Yeah. I am. My brain is exploding right now. We can talk New England, Billy. Wow. Yeah. My, my ex-wife is from Brockton. Oh, no way. She lives on North Cary Street. Okay. Yeah. North Cary. I'll be going to Cary Hill up that way. Yeah. Cary Street. Sure. Unbelievable. Yeah. So Boston yeah. Conservatory. Yes. I knew many people from my high school yeah. who were so trying to get Boston into that. Conservatory. I was a senior. I went to the audition. I got the job and actually came down, started rehearsal, went back to graduate, actually graduate two weeks later and then never left. You know, I came down here to be here for a year and my year turned into <laughs> 39 so far. Un Believable, 39 yeah. years and only, and, and still ongoing, you're still there. Yeah, yeah. So I'm the longest consecutively contracted entertainer. So I've never had a break in my contract. I worked at Walt Disney World for five years. I transferred as a test out to Disneyland as a uh -huh. performer. And then after two years, when they opened the Hollywood Studios, I was brought back to Walt Disney World and um have been there ever since that's quite a blessing yeah, and, you know, and in all those years i've only been status at 15 different 15 shows you know so in 39 years you think 15 so i've done 
well over 650 shows, parades, travel trade shows, tours, conventions, mm-hmm. and things like that. But as far as shows that were in the park, there were four, 15 that I have been actually statused in. Yeah. And then once Epcot opened, I became a park swing. So I did all of the shows in the Magic Kingdom, all of the shows at Epcot, and I just went around and subbed them all. And in 1986, I literally only had six days off the entire year because I worked every single day, most days triples between, I started the Melvin the Moose Breakfast Show, I'd go over and either split my day between Kids of the Kingdom and the Diamond Horseshoe, end my night at the hoop de doo and then start all over again. Wow. And just worked, 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 worked. You know, I had kids, but I n- never saw them. <laughs> and I was just, you know, Karen was a stay-at-home mom. You know, we had one and then boom, boom, we had the second one. Then we went to California. We came back at the third one. And then, you know, it was 10 years later and they were involved in sports and all these things. And I just, I was work, 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 work. And it was just like, what the joke was, what's something you'll never hear Billy say? And that was no. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think, Billy, you may hate me for this. I think you might be the first grandparent that I have on the show. You are a grandfather, That's correct? Amazing. I am three times. Yeah. Three nine, times. Four. Like not, not only a grandparent, my, my grandkids are older. I mean, nine and eight. That's just my granddaughter's gonna be 10 in 2021. Yeah. So that's crazy. Wow. Double that... digits for her. Yeah. So um, yeah, grandfather, and you know, I'm I'm kind of proud of it. I'm just, I'm very proud of it. I never try to hide my age. I do birthday shows. I do shows for myself when I turn significant numbers. Yeah. Because I, I don't necessarily care. My mom always said it's just a number. And I always say it's I'm like the weather. My age is 60, but my feels like age is 30. I mean, yeah. literally, I so have the energy of so somebody so much younger. And I'm just so blessed that way. It's, it's just awesome. But, you know, so I'll tell you what my number is. And, you know, if you get close and see my face, I said, if you're drunk from the third row, I can be 30. Maybe. <laughs> I, but you have to be farther back. And Yeah. And yeah, I is, always say, could we, do, is there a scrim we could light from the front if you need me to play 30 or under these days? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And lastly, Andrea Canny was talking about this uh, film that she's working on producing. And I believe the subject matter of that film, Billy, is you. It is, that was crazy. I started doing these flanograms, which it was basically me going around doing a singing telegram and Jen Warren, who we talked about earlier. Jen Warren, yep. um, She named them flanograms. So my uh-huh. last name's Flanagan. I thought I was calling them Billy Grams because I thought that was funny. Billy and, Yeah, so they became Flanagan. <laughs> Thank you for thinking that's funny. That was, yes. yeah. Billy Grams. I'm a sinner. I have sinned before God. <laughs> so um, after they got dubbed that and I started doing these and they just kind of blew up and I started traveling the country. Somebody needed their car in California. I wasn't doing anything. I was on, you know, my house was in dying order. I did what everybody did after two weeks. I'd done everything. So I just started biking and socially distantly singing hello telegrams to people and riding my bike a buttload of miles for it. And how many, what was the, because there was an article in the Sentinel about you. Uh, doing it how many yeah how many by then miles it was 3, had you 000. right now i'm uh, 
the end of the year, I was 6,741, I believe, <sighs> miles total. And then I saw, Damn. I knocked on 434 doors, but saw over 900 people and, and all of that. So it was great. I'm still doing it. I did a couple this year already. I've done five already this year. And That's don't great. worry, David, I'm coming to your house. Oh, God. Your address. I can't wait. I cannot yeah. wait. So um, I, because of that, and somebody had talked to Andrea about, has anyone ever done a documentary about Billy? And she asked me, and I just started laughing. I'm like, why would anybody want to do a documentary about me? So she... Um, she said no, and this guy interviewed me, and I think it was primarily going to be about the flanograms. But then, after talking to me and hearing my stories about Disney and my family, and you know, coming out and just all of this stuff, he decided that they were going to do a feature length. So it's called Billy Flanagan, the Happiest Man on Earth. And although I am the subject of it, I know nothing about it. They have oh. a director who's directing it. All the stories are true. They've talked to people that I don't even know. I haven't seen interviews. And I know that my interviews, all I did was cry. So oh, I said, geez. how can you call this the happiest man on earth when all I'm doing is crying? So they <laughs> subtitled it, Behind Every Smile Are a Million Tears. And then Carol Stein wrote an original song called Behind Every Smile Are a Million Tears, which I got to record and then did a music video to, which is going to open the film. Ah. Uh. So it's- Is there a release date set or did COVID fuck that up or? Yeah. Well, not only COVID did, because I guess, and I don't know very much about this whole film business, but um, all the producers proceeds from this are going to go to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation because my daughter's a type one diabetic. So they were doing a funding campaign to pay all of the people who have put the film together, mm -hmm. the editors, and which these the musicians, they actually have a, a guy, Rob Portoff, who is this brilliant musician who has done films and TV shows and stuff for Disney, all, who is doing all of the original music. It's all original music underscoring this whole movie. Wow. And, um, and he's going to write a song for the end of the movie. Carol Stein's written the beginning song. They've got film editors and animators and things like that. It's just like huge. Wow. And so we want to make sure that all of them get paid for their work mm. and then you know the producers proceeds will go to the jdrf the proceeds, yeah. so they started doing a funding campaign i forget it wasn't gofundme it was something else an indiegogo whatever oh indiegogo that, that sounds like yeah. it yeah and you know it just it was right at the time they were announcing that everybody was losing their jobs mm. and all of this and i just i it i felt uncomfortable even though i had nothing to do with it i just felt so uncomfortable mm -hmm. so they did pull it down so that um so now they're looking for more corporate sponsors and stuff and then i think it i think the home of it they're hoping will be disney plus since it's so disney related oh yeah and um so we'll see but oh. they are these this director uh cullen douglas who is an amazing actor director out in los angeles and the pro executive producer randy goodwin who lives in atlanta they already have produced so many documentaries that are on netflix and hulu and all this stuff so wow yeah it's pretty incredible that's exciting and so humbling and just just amazing and i i wake up going how is this my life you know <laughs> I, I got on my bike and i rode my bike and i knocked on some doors and it turned into that and then after all that you know on october 3rd i got called back to work to do a show i didn't know and mm. i was having so much survivor guilt because 
there were so many people that knew that show that they could have brought back and they brought me back uh-huh. and to help me get to my 40 years or, uh, you know, I, and Sheila and I, Sheila Ward and I, who have done so many things together are working together over there oh, yeah. Frozen mm-hmm. for the first time forever celebration. So it's, it's just been so incredible. And that is amazing. Uh, I'll be sure to share the information about the movie as I have it, as it, as it approaches uh, to to the listenership of this. And um, I've, I've been loving listening to this because you and I, like we've worked together a little bit. We know each right. other socially a little bit, but we've never sat down and had a conversation like this right. before. Exactly. And, and it's been great to hear these stories, to learn you're from Avon. What the fuck, man? That is unreal. Right. <laughs> so Billy we need to wrap up this facts of life episode yes and we've kind of gone through the plot already but i do have some fields that need to be felted about the posters um i don't know how much writing you've done but i know you're i'm sure familiar with a script where there are what are called doofer jokes as in we need a joke here the rhythm of the scene calls for there to be a joke here I don't know what the joke is, or I'm sure there's a better joke, but for now I'm going to stick this one here that pops to mind and it'll do for now. So it's called a doofer. And the thing with the movie posters clearly to me was a doofer joke that they never got around to fixing or improving. It was like they got to taping day and were like, "We, we haven't figured out something better to do because the joke that they're attempting to do is Natalie says, we were there and we wanted to get this poster for Blair, but I couldn't remember if it was hell over the Pacific, hell on Frisco Bay, or hell's a poppin'. And the punchline to that joke is when Joe says, it was damn Yankees. Yeah. So three things that sound alike. No, it was this other thing that sounds nothing like them. I get the structure of the joke. It is a perfectly sound structure. Yeah. However, let us review these three titles that they clearly picked at random because they all had the word hell in them. Right. Hell over the Pacific is not the title of a movie. There is a movie called Hell in the Pacific, which was a 1968 movie about World War II starring Lee Marvin, directed by John Borman. That was 1968. Hell on Frisco Bay is a 1955 movie starring Alan Ladd and Edward G. Robinson, which was essentially a color film noir about an unjustly convicted cop being released from prison and going about trying to clear his name and prove his innocence. 1955. Then we have Hell's a Poppin'. That is a 1941 musical that ran on Broadway from 1938 to 1941. And here is the film version starring the wonderful Ole Olson and Chick Johnson. Those, yeah. Who doesn't love an Olson and Johnson vehicle <laughs> with supporting help from Martha Ray. So I will post pictures of all of these movie posters because the internet exists. And so we can look at all of these posters. Number one, Blair is not a movie buff. Blair never was a movie buff. Natalie is the one who has been known to have 
a Marx Brothers Animal Crackers poster or um, is it the Wizard of Oz? There's there's been a couple of times where Natalie has shown an affinity for the older black and white screwball comedies like the Three Stooges. Natalie early, early on was said to be a lover of the Three Stooges. But Blair, no, no, net, 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 net. The only thing about Blair that might relate to this is Blair at one time was the artistic of the four. The one who actually painted and was going to pursue a career probably in painting, illustration, fine arts. They had just recently reestablished that, but then they abandoned it as they do stuff in 1980s sitcoms. So the fact that it's Blair wanted a movie poster, Blair wanted a movie poster. If they could have just said, because she loves the artist, because some of the greatest artists of those days were making movie posters, that could have helped to justify it. But to have the end result be damn Yankees which was a 1958 movie where Gwen Verdon as Lola, a, is she technically what, a devil? Or the devil's apprentice trying to lure yeah. uh, uh, an older man to sell his soul to the devil. And, uh, and by giving him his dream in exchange for his soul is he always wanted to pitch for the Yankees. So she, they make him a famous pitcher uh, and give him his youth back. But the deal is the poster for damn Yankees is, there is no variation. It's always Gwen Verdon standing, legs spread, kind of like a Wonder Woman pose, because the movie was all about how gorgeous yeah. she was, the skimpy outfit she wore, and what a sex pot seductress her character of Lola was. That's where we get the song, Whatever Lola Wants, for the people who are not you and me, Billy, who right. already know that shit. So... There's nothing about the damn Yankees poster that would say, oh, well, this artist, Blair appreciates the brush strokes and the, anyhow, my big overall overarching thing is because of this stupid joke where it's like, let's say three things that sound like hell. And then the punchline is the actual thing is nothing like hell. And I don't know, damn Yankees, because it's the devil, the it's devil. It's bad word. Hell, I know, really. But the fact is that there is no relationship between these movies at all. That they would be at the store looking at the posters and saying, Blair might want this. Ooh, but she could want that. <gasps> ah, but it might be this third one too. I'm not sure which of these works of art Blair's artist's eye would be drawn to. No! This is a shitty, bad, doofer joke that the writers never fixed. And I am really, really and then Mrs. angry. Garrett had to have her joke about John Smith Bauer, who she went and saw the movie with, and then nothing yes. ever happened. <laughs> yes. And I just love that his name was John Smith like, Bauer. Bauer at the <laughs> yes. end of that. Yeah. And another yeah. thing I did look up because I just do these ridiculous deep dives. This will be our, our final uh, note on the episode. Because Damn Yankees came out in 1958, Charlotte Ray at that time was on Broadway doing Mammy Yoakum in Lil Abner. That's amazing. Yep. So yeah, it's funny as Mrs. Garrett is reminiscing about seeing the film. And the other cool thing is that while Charlotte Ray was on Broadway in Lil Abner, Gwen Verdon was on Broadway in New Girl in Town. So 
Charlotte Ray talking like this little, you know, kid from Appleton, Wisconsin, who eventually ends up in Peekskill, New York. The fact is, it's like she was actually on Broadway with Gwen Verdon at the same time. That's amazing. When, when that movie came out. Well, Billy, what a joy this has been to get some time with you alone. You're always you know, I often would uh, see you over at Pilar's in the wonderful downtown Winter Garden where you Thursday host... night, 7 to 10. Thursday night, 7 to 10. You, do you still do that? Yeah. Is that still Are going on? Socially it distanced? Is. Socially distanced. So that's been up and running. So we're there and we're and... upstairs now, not in the bar downstairs. Oh, we're upstairs okay. in what they call the Pilar's loft. So it's a kind of like a ballroom area. Upstairs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. Now, how long have you been doing Pilar's? It'll, uh, I'm going on eight years. Wow. Yeah. And it's basically like an open mic. It's a singer's open mic. So don't singers ever open karaoke because Kelly Richards will slit his wrists. No, um, no, it's it, not karaoke. It's singer's open mic there. So there's a piano player. Kelly Richards is the uh, piano player and people will come and we get some really fantastic, unbelievable singers. A couple of weeks before Christmas, we had 23 singers in one night. Wow. And then, and then next week we had 27. Holy so I mean, shit. people. I mean, and this is during the socially distant time, you know. Wow. So we really get a lot of great, great singers in there. Well, thanks so much for having me on here. This was a blast, oh, really Billy. This it. was so much fun, and I cannot wait uh, until we're able to see each other in person. And yeah. uh, I hope I'll have you back on the show again. Until next time, my yeah. sweet smooches, and goodbye, and thank you so much. Mwah. Let's face the facts, people. Let's face the facts. Yes, I think we faced them. Facts <laughs> faced. Check. And there you have it. That was Billy Flanagan. Oh, so glad I got to talk with him. And I cannot believe that we grew up in literally neighboring towns, Brockton and Avon, Massachusetts. Huh. So one correction. We were talking about John Lovitz. And I said, I think of him as a New York person. I guess it's because I was first introduced to him on Saturday Night Live, which is such a New York show. But John Lovitz was, in fact, born in L.A. And he got his theater degree at the University of California at Irvine, after which he went on to join the Groundlings. So not Second City. Lovitz was a Groundlings guy. And that's where he first met his future SNL castmate, the late, great Phil Hartman. And the other thing that my research told me that I wasn't aware of is that the Tommy Flanagan pathological liar character saying, yeah, that's the ticket, is apparently a quote spoken by Humphrey Bogart in one of his films. That is really just kind of an old school 1940s kind of a phrase. Yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I mean. So, uh, yeah. So we have Humphrey Bogart to thank for initially doing it. And then... Maybe one of these writers happened to catch Mr. Lovitz at the Groundlings before they went back to the Facts of Life writer's room and wrote that line for Joe. Next thing that I didn't get to mention during this show was that this episode was the first time we ever see the hallway between the girls' bedroom and the second bathroom, which I guess is the bathroom Mrs. Garrett uses, even though her bedroom is on the lower landing of the stairs. Uh, they do say that the shower in their bedroom is broken, which is why Blair and Joe are fighting over it. But anyway, it was so interesting to see this new space, and yet it is decorated with all of the wood and all the colors of the rest of the house. 
So just another little uh, landmark moment. I don't know if we ever see the hallway again, but this is the first time. Next is a moment that I didn't get to talk about with Billy, but I did want to bring it up, is that after Blair is mauled by Louis the Langley Lion, her uh, Helen of Troy outfit is all soiled and dirty. So one of the scenes of the show is Mrs. Garrett and Tootie and Natalie trying to help her bring the costume back, get it back up to speed, make repairs on the crown, yada, yada. So Mrs. Garrett goes to Blair with the gown in her hand, the the toga-like dress, and says, I couldn't get out all of the stains. And Blair says, you couldn't use bleach? And Mrs. Garrett says, I read the instructions on three different boxes, and none of them said anything about skid marks. <laughs> of course she means skid marks in the classic sense of when something scrapes against something else and makes it dirty. But, of course, now, 37 years after this episode was taped, a skid mark is a very different thing. Uh, for those of you that don't know, that is a, uh, basically, it's a poopy stain in your underpants. Sometimes it's also called a racing stripe. So, uh, there you go. So to hear Mrs. Garrett say the word skid mark is kind of amazing and, uh, and hilarious. Next week, my guest is going to be Jody Chase. Returning after nearly two years since the first time she was on the show. And Jody and I will be watching season six, episode 10, Talk, Talk, Talk. You can watch the episode for free at dailymotion.com and on this episode's webpage. That's all for now. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you. Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by me, David Almeida. My theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Visit my website, facethefactspod.com, for supplemental photos and videos, audio extras from the digital cutting room floor, links to my social media, and ways that you can support the show financially. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.